everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory on this beautiful April evening in Tucson, Arizona. We also welcome you, those of you who are watching us live tonight, Monday night on Zoom, and for those of you who will be watching the recording of this uh, presentation. We're popular with the Astronomical Society of Kansas City, so they watch a lot of our recordings at their meetings. Uh, so shout out to them. This is our last Steward Public Evening Lecture of the 2021-22 academic year. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, the Raymond E. White Jr. 21-inch telescope, which is in the original Steward Observatory building, will be open for public viewing. Unfortunately, uh, the ground floor little visitor center that we have is not open uh, because we're still waiting for the painters to come and paint the walls. So, uh, but the telescope will be open if you've never been there. It's the cream colored uh, tile building right next door. Go in the doorway and up two flights of stairs. Uh, also, I would bring to your attention that when we meet again in September, uh, we're still in the planning stages, but we'll have some very special events because the very first Steward Public Evening hosted by Andrew Ellicott Douglas was on September the 28th, 1922. So we are going to celebrate 100 years of Steward Public Evenings on September 28th, 2022. And you'll be getting emails uh, on our, our email listserv uh, of, of some of the events that we have planned for September. And uh, the original telescope was dedicated in April, April 23 of 23. So we're gonna have a whole bunch of uh, reasons to party next year, uh, culminating in April of 2023 with the 100th anniversary of the dedication of the observatory. Notice Douglas had members of the public here listening to lectures and looking at the telescope, even before the telescope was officially dedicated, okay? So public outreach was important to him, and 100 years later, Do you it's just important. see the title page, question so mark, while I the would guy's now talking? like to introduce tonight's speaker. This year, we've had a theme of James Webb Space Telescope, and not only keeping you up to date with what's happening with the telescope, but also what the various astronomers at Stewart Observatory are going to be using the James Webb Telescope for. And uh, tonight we are very, very pleased to have Dr. Megan Mansfield. Megan is our NASA Sagan Fellow. Uh, NASA awards every year eight Sagan Fellows. And the fellowship lasts for three years. So at any one time, there are 24 Sagan Fellows. They also do Hubble Fellows and they do Einstein Fellows for high energy astrophysics. And uh, Megan uh, received her bachelor's degree from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, double majored in physics, and I believe it was atmospheric planetary science and Earth atmosphere and, Earth atmosphere and planetary science, science. right. Um, then she received her PhD from the University of Chicago in geosciences. And she just graduated a year ago. So this is her first gig as a professional astronomer with a PhD. And unfortunately, she arrives 
in September of, 19, of 2021 in the middle of a pandemic. But uh, I think that most of our postdocs are starting to get uh, accustomed to the climate here, both in our department and in town. And we welcome Megan as a member of the Stewart Observatory family. And we're asking here to talk to us uh, on the topic, searching for atmospheres on rocky planets with the James Webb Space Telescope, Dr. Mansfield. Thank you. Uh, can you all hear me? <laughs> this, is, this is her, this is she. can hear me okay, right? Yeah, cool. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so thanks so much for having me here today. I'm so excited to tell you guys about some of the research that I'm gonna be doing with the James Webb Space Telescope this next year. Um, all right, so just to give an outline of what we're going to talk about today. Um, so first, I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, what are exoplanets. This is um, my main area of research, anything to do with exoplanets. Um, I'll give you a little intro on how we detect exoplanets, some of the different ways we find them. Um, and then specifically today, I'm going to focus on rocky planets, Earth-sized exoplanets. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what types of Earth-sized planets we're going to be able to um, study with JWST. And I'll talk about how JWST can be used to look at the atmospheres of these planets and figure out what they're made of. Um, and then specifically today, I'm going to focus on one method that I'm going to be using in my research, which is called secondary eclipse photometry. All right, so first, and possibly some background for- uh, And our uh, Zoom audience says the audio is a little faint. So I'm going to adjust that little thing on your, if you give me- Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, this guy. Turn oh, okay. it up just a little bit. Is that better, Zoom audience? <laughs> well, just keep talking and he'll let us know. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, this may be a little bit of background for those of you who know a lot about astronomy. Um, but exoplanets, perfect, awesome. Okay. Um, exoplanets are basically any planet outside of our own solar system. So we think that the way our solar system formed is it started with um, a young version of our star surrounded by this um, disk of gas and dust. And a lot of that gas collapsed onto the star and formed the sun, but some of the leftovers of that gas and dust formed into the planets we have in our solar system. And basically the same process we think happens around every star in the galaxy. So when you look up at the night sky, and you look at the stars in the Milky Way, we think now every single one of those stars is its own solar system with some number of planets around it. And specifically for um, Earth-sized planets, we think about one in five stars might have a planet the same size as the Earth in what we refer to as the habitable zone. So the habitable zone is essentially just um, the area away from a star where we could have liquid water existing on the surface of the planet. So in our solar system, Earth's in the habitable zone, Venus is too close, it's too hot, Mars is too far away, it's too cold. And the reason that this is so important as a concept is because we think that um, definitely all life on Earth requires water, and we think that more universally all life in the galaxy would require, um, if not water, then at least some form of liquid that the chemical reactions that make up life could happen in. And water is pretty much the most abundant liquid in the universe. So um, it would make sense if a lot of life developed to require water. So basically when you look up at the sky, we think that one out of every five of those stars could have a planet about the same size as Earth at about the right temperature 
to have liquid water on it. That doesn't mean that they all would be habitable, but that certainly gives us a lot of really cool opportunities to look for other life in the universe. All right, so now I just wanna give you a little bit of background on how we actually detect exoplanets. Um, and today I'm gonna be focusing on something called the transit method. So the basic idea here is we're looking at this star. Whoops, where's my mouse? There we go, we'll play this video. Um, so we're looking, is that gonna play? There we go, okay, perfect. All right, so we're looking at this star. We've got a planet orbiting around our star. And if it just so happens that this system is aligned perfectly on our line of sight, we can see that planet pass in front of its star. And every time the planet passes in front of its star, it's gonna um, block a little bit of the starlight. And so we'll see a little dip in the amount of light that the star is giving off. And then if we see that happen repeatedly, every time the planet orbits the star, we see the same drop in the star's brightness, we can infer that there is a planet there. Um, whoops, okay. There we go. Okay, so this is what's called the transit method. We're looking for um, these transits of this planet in front of the star from our point of view. And what we measure in the transit method is called the transit depth, and it's that dip in brightness that we get when the planet blocks part of the star. Um, now, something important to note here is that this transit method is biased towards detecting really close in planets. Um, so here I'm plotting all of the planets that we know of now, and they're all color-coded by how they were detected. Um, the important one to focus here is these read squares. Those are the transit method. The other ones are all other different methods. Um, and you can see that they're all clustered at really short periods, which is how long it takes them to go around the star. So these are all really close to their stars. Um, and the reason that is, is because of a couple of different things that make it easier to detect transits of close-in planets. The first one is just the close-in planets transit more frequently. So if we just see a single dip in brightness in a star, maybe that's a planet, maybe that's just the star did something weird, maybe that's our telescope did something weird, maybe that's a cloud got in the way in our own atmosphere. Um, but if we can see that same dip in light, that same transit happen repeatedly and periodically, then we can be much more sure that it's a planet. So usually in order to say we've actually detected a planet, we wanna be able to see it go around its star several times. So if we were trying to detect the Earth, we'd have to wait several years just to see it transit because we only go around the sun once every year. Um, but for all these close-in planets, we can see them transit once every few days in some cases. So it's easier to tell that those are actually planets. And then the second thing is that a close-in planet has a higher probability of transiting. So in order to see this planet transit, right, we have to see that system really edge on so that the planet goes in front of the star from our point of view. And there's a little bit of wiggle room, you know, a few angles where we could allow for the planet would still block some of the starlight but not be perfectly edge on. Um, but as the planet gets further and further away from the star, there is um, less of a range of angles that let you um, still be able to see the planet actually going in front of the star. Um, so closed-in planets will be much more likely to actually transit their stars. Okay, so going back to that um, transit depth that I mentioned, um, so I just wanted to give you guys a really quick uh, intro on how what that transit depth can tell us about the planet. Um, so we're seeing our planet go in front of our star, um, and that transit depth, again, is the amount of light that gets blocked by the planet. Um, so that amount is gonna be basically the ratio of the area of the planet to the area of the star, because we're basically seeing here one circle blocking another circle. 
Um, so since these are both circles, their area is pi r squared. So that transit depth is going to be proportional to uh, the radius of the planet divided by the radius of the star. So what this means is that it's also going to be easier for us to detect um, not just close-in planets, but planets that are bigger or planets that orbit smaller stars are both going to be easier to detect. So detecting an Earth around a Sun-like star might be kind of hard because the Earth is really, really small compared to the Sun. Um, but luckily for us, there's lots of other stars in the galaxy that are much smaller than the Sun, so it'd be much easier to detect a planet around them. Um, so there's this strange classification system we use for stars. Don't ask why the letters are all out of order. But essentially, there's um, a few stars that exist in our galaxy that are much bigger than our sun. These are these huge O stars over here. Um, our sun is what's called a G star. It's kind of an in-between size, in-between brightness. And then there's these really small stars called M dwarf stars that are actually much more common in our galaxy than stars like our sun. And because these M dwarf stars are so much smaller, it's much easier to detect a planet that's transiting around them because it'll block a bigger fraction of their light. In addition to that, M dwarf stars are cooler than the sun. And so the habitable zone of an M dwarf star will be much closer into it. So again, the habitable zone is where you can have liquid water existing. And the hotter your star is, the further away from the star you have to get in order to be able to have liquid water. So those big O stars, you'd have to get very far away from them to have liquid water. For the sun, at about a year period where we are, we can have liquid water. But for an M dwarf, it can be even closer in. So for a bunch of different reasons, it's much easier to find habitable planets around M dwarfs. So to just kind of summarize why JWST is going to be so focused on these planets orbiting M dwarfs, Here's kind of a comparison of what you would see if you were looking at an Earth-sized planet in the habitable zone around an M dwarf versus around a Sun-like star. So for a star like our Sun, the habitable zone is at one astronomical unit, basically just the distance from the Sun to ourselves. Um, and we orbit with a period of one year. Um, for a planet like that, um, the probability that you would see it transit, that it would be at just the right angle that we can see the system face on, is only about half a percent. Um, for an M dwarf, if we just took the Earth and put it in the uh, place where it would have the same temperature but around an M dwarf star, um, it would actually be at only 0.06 astronomical units, which means it would orbit its star once every 13 days. So we can see it transit much more frequently every 13 days instead of every year. Um, and also the probability that it's lined up just right that we can see a transit is 2%. So still not high, but four times bigger than the chance of seeing the Earth transit the sun. And also that transit depth, the signal that we see when we look at a transit is gonna be much bigger for a planet orbiting an M dwarf because the star is so much smaller. So for a, a planet like the Earth transiting the sun, um, we would expect a transit depth that's only 80 parts per million. But if we took the Earth and we had it transiting an M dwarf, it would be a signal that's 2,000 parts per million, so many times more. So for all these reasons, um, James Webb is mostly going to be looking at transiting planets um, around M dwarfs, at least when we talk about um, rocky planets or potentially habitable planets. Um, so these planets might be a little bit different than what the Earth is like. There's a few key things I want to point out as some strange uh, things that might happen on planets in the habitable zones of M dwarfs. 
Um, so one is that these planets are probably doing something that's called synchronous rotation. Um, so this basically just means that um, the planet and the star have interacted through tides and that's um, made the planet so that every single time it has a day essentially, every time the planet rotates once, that's the same length as a year, the amount of time it takes the planet to go around the star. Um, so this is the same for our moon. Um, our moon started out, we think, rotating at a slightly different rate, but then because of tides and interactions between the moon and the Earth, the moon ended up so that um, the length of time it takes to go around the Earth is the same as the length of time the moon takes to rotate. So that's why there's one side of the moon that we can always see, and then there's the dark side of the moon that we can never see unless we go to space. Um, so for these planets that are synchronously rotating around these M dwarfs, they would be the same. They have one side, which we refer to as the day side, that's always facing the star, and one side, the night side, that's always facing away from the star. So they wouldn't have sunrises, sunsets, anything like that. They'd just be the sun would always be in the same place in the sky all throughout the year on these planets. Um, and you can imagine that might be a problem for living there because one side facing the star would get really, really hot and the side facing away from the star would be really cold all the time. Um, luckily, if you have a big enough atmosphere, we think that uh, winds in the atmosphere could circulate that heat around. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it'd be impossible to live on these planets. They'd just be kind of different than what we have on the Earth. Um, but another thing that makes us really unsure about the possibility of life on these planets is that M dwarfs are much more active than the sun. So stars have all of these really intense flares that go on, especially when they're really young. Um, they have a lot of activity and these big flares are basically super energetic particles that can um, strip away all of the atmosphere from a planet. Um, so it's possible that when M dwarfs were younger, especially when they had much higher rates of flaring than stars the size of the sun, they could have stripped all of the atmosphere off any planet around them. And without an atmosphere, it'd be very difficult to develop life, at least life like us. So um, that could be a problem for life on these planets. So we wanna like find a way to tell which of these, whether these M dwarf planets can even have atmospheres in the first place um, before we you know, try and look for life on them. All right, so we wanna know whether these planets have atmospheres. Um, so it turns out that one way to look for atmospheres on these planets and figure out what they're made of is to again use this transit method where we're watching the planet go in front of the star. Um, so if you picture a planet with a little ring of atmosphere around it here going in front of a star. So there's most of the starlight is just coming directly to your telescope. There's gonna be a little bit of starlight blocked by the planet itself. That's that transit that we see. And then there's gonna be an even smaller amount of starlight that's gonna get filtered through the planet's atmosphere. And when it gets filtered through the atmosphere like that and arrives at our telescope, we can look at that and tell that the planet has an atmosphere. And we can also look at that light that's coming through and look for the individual signatures of different molecules in the atmosphere to tell what it's made of. Um, so here I'm just showing uh, one model that someone made of what a uh, Earth-like planet around an M dwarf might look like. And um, so here it's just showing on the x-axis is the wavelength of light we're looking at. And um, you can see they've pointed out here on the bottom this near-spec and NIRI they've put here. These are two of the instruments that are on the James Webb Space Telescope. And they're just showing you what regions of the wavelengths they're going to be able to look at. 
And then they've helpfully pointed out for us here um, so a bunch of different molecules that you're able to detect. So basically, we can look at all of these bumps and wiggles and match them up to individual fingerprints almost for each molecule that could be in an atmosphere. So in this atmosphere, we could say we can see that there's carbon dioxide, we can see that there's methane, ozone, water, a lot of different gases like what we have on Earth. Um, so these gases are something that we call potential biosignatures, um, gases that could indicate the presence of life. Now, just having these gases doesn't mean that you necessarily have life. You could have water if you don't have life. Um, volcanoes can make methane. So, um, you know, a lot of them could be produced in other ways. But the more we learn about these planets, then once we've detected a few of these interesting gases, we can go look at them in more detail and try and figure out uh, whether there's combinations of gases that indicate life more or something like that. Um, so again, this black here, this uh, black line is their simulation of one possible atmosphere on uh, this planet TRAPPIST-1e. That's an Earth-like planet orbiting in the habitable zone of an M dwarf star. And then these blue points they've overplotted here are what it might look like if you observed transits of this object with JWST. So looking at the spectrum, this looks really good, right? There's like, you can see a lot of stuff here. Um, you can see all of these features very clearly. Unfortunately, um, this figure assumes you've observed this planet 150 times in 150 different transits. Um, and just to give you some scale for that, that would be observing this planet every single time it goes in front of its star for two and a half years. And this planet orbits its star once every like 15 days. So that's a big commitment of time. Um, so that would be a lot of time to spend on an individual target. So it is possible to detect a lot of these gases with JWST, but we would have to really put in the telescope time to get detections this good. So we wanna know for sure that we're looking at something that's like worthy of that much time investment. Um, so kind of more generally, uh, just to detect any of these bumps and wiggles in this spectrum. So basically to say, this isn't just a flat line that I'm seeing, I'm seeing like some wiggles that are due to different gases. Um, you would have to probably observe a typical planet 10 times. Um, so still a fair amount of telescope time there. And not to be too depressing, but um, the case gets even worse if you add in the possibility that the planet is cloudy. Um, so essentially, clouds can kind of smooth out all of these bumps and wiggles that you see so that you're not able to detect anything. So the models that you can see on this plot are going from the blue one on the bottom has the least amount of clouds all the way up to the orange one has the most amount of clouds. And you can see how adding clouds into these models really dampens the size of the features you're able to detect. Um, so if these planets are really cloudy, if we observe them on a bad day, um, it could be almost impossible to detect the atmospheres of these planets, which is not saying that we shouldn't do it. This is what JWST is made for. It's going to be able to look at habitable planets. And that's really exciting to have the first opportunity to look for life on some of these planets. But we really wanna know before we put in that much telescope time that we're looking at the best targets possible. So we wanna know how can we be sure that this planet we're looking at, especially around these strange M dwarf stars that could be flaring, could strip all the atmosphere off these planets. How do we know that these planets do actually have an atmosphere in the first place even? And how do we know that they're a good target for this type of a search? 
Um, so that's kind of what my research has been on. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about this technique called secondary eclipse photometry um, that we're going to be doing. Um, so basically, this technique um, happens during the secondary eclipse, which is on the other side of the planet's orbit. So the transit is when we see the planet go in front of the star. And the secondary eclipse, we see the planet just as it's disappearing behind the star. Um, so if you picture again, this planet is um, synchronously rotating. So it's got a hot day side facing the star and a cold night side facing away from the star. When you're looking at the planet in secondary eclipse, when it's going behind the star, you're gonna be seeing that hot day side facing you. So what we're actually able to measure is light coming from that hot day side of the planet. And JWST is gonna be looking at these planets in the infrared. So I don't know if any of you have ever played around with an infrared camera before, or maybe this isn't as big of a deal in Arizona as it is in the Midwest where I was before this, but you can get people to come out with an infrared camera and like look for holes in your insulation in your house. But basically infrared light tracks how hot things are. So you can see people's faces come up and like clothes look darker because they're not as warm. So essentially what we're doing here when we see this infrared light coming off the day side of this planet is we're getting a measure of the temperature of the planet, of the temperature of its day side. All right, so let's like take a detour for a second to talk about what would set the temperature of these planets. So there's kind of two things that factor into how hot the day side of one of these planets is. Um, the first is the albedo of the planet. So a higher albedo just means something that's more reflective, like snow, which is really reflective. Um, and if you reflect more light, then the planet's not going to be absorbing that light from the star because it'll just be reflecting it back into space. And any light that it absorbs from the star, it has to emit back out as heat. So if it's absorbing less, it emits less, it looks less hot to us. Um, so something like snow, high albedo, is pretty cold because it reflects all of this light. Whereas something like asphalt gets much warmer than you might even expect, very hot to the touch because it's so dark colored and it has a low albedo. So it's absorbing almost all of the light that hits it. All right, so albedo is the first one. And then the second thing that's gonna matter for setting the temperature of the day side of these planets is how well they can circulate heat around from the day side to the night side. So like I said earlier, if you have a thick enough atmosphere, you might be able to have the winds in that atmosphere spread some of that heat out. So instead of having a really hot day side and a really cold night side, which is this red curve here, that part in the center is the day side where it peaks. Um, instead of that, you could have a more moderate day side and night side that are both kind of similar temperatures to each other. All right, so we've got these two factors, the albedo and the amount of heat that the atmosphere is spreading around that determine what the temperature is. Um, so the idea here is that an atmosphere on a planet will cool off the day side through one of two mechanisms. Either it can circulate heat around, use winds to cool down the day side and heat up the night side. Um, and to do that, we think you'd need an atmosphere maybe as thick as Earth's or a little bit thicker, um, but about Earth-sized atmosphere. Or even a thin atmosphere could host high albedo clouds, which would reflect away all of that light and also cool down the day side. Um, so even an atmosphere as thick as Mars is, you can see there are clouds on Mars here, and Mars has an atmosphere only about 1% the size of that of Earth. Um, so even a really thin atmosphere would still be able to have some clouds that could reflect away some light and cool down the um, day side of this planet. 
So essentially, we can observe this planet with JWST and get a measure of how hot its day side is. We expect that a planet without an atmosphere would be relatively hot. Um, we can just say there's some minimum temperature and we wouldn't expect it to be colder than that if it's just a bare rock. But then if it has an atmosphere, there's these two different mechanisms that it could use to cool down the planet. So if we observe a temperature that's colder than we expect for a bare rock, we can say that that planet has an atmosphere. Now, there's one problem here, which is how could we tell the difference between a planet with an atmosphere that has these clouds that are very reflective or just a planet with a really reflective surface? There's a lot of things out there that could make our planet have a high albedo, even if it doesn't have clouds. It could be covered with snow. Um, it could be made of various rocks that are really high albedo. These are the white cliffs of Dover. They're made of limestone, which is also very bright colored. Um, or granite, this is Yosemite. Um, granite is also very um, reflective. And so all of these can make our planet look like it has a high albedo. So the important thing here is that all of these rocks and surfaces and things that have really high albedos require water to form. For snow, this is probably very obvious to you. For these other rocks, um, basically having water filtering through the rock and incorporated into the mineral is a key part of how these rocks form. So you wouldn't be able to have these on a planet that didn't have water. So this means basically we can say, um, we can set a temperature range uh, for what types of planets we could use this method on. So I'll kind of go through how we get this temperature range. So for planets that are maybe what we would consider to be regular temperatures for the Earth, um, cooler temperatures there, we could have these high albedo rocks. Um, let me step back for a second actually and just say that this bottom axis here is in, like it's doing the substellar temperature, which is essentially the temperature of the hottest point um, right underneath the star on these planets. So the hottest part of the day side on these planets. Um, so this is probably like a couple hundred degrees hotter than like the, uh, no, it's okay, but thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, a little hotter than like the average temperature on the day side, but it's the temperature of the hottest point. So for um, what would be a regular temperature for the earth, but what is like cold temperatures on this plot, um, we could have these high albedo rocks like granite and limestone and things like that existing. And so we might not necessarily be able to say for sure if we saw a cold planet, is it cold because it just has a high albedo surface or is it cold because it actually has an atmosphere? But if we get to a warm enough temperature um, beyond the temperature where this process called the runaway greenhouse happens, which is essentially the temperature at which a planet like the earth would lose all of its water, um, then all of those rocks would actually lose all of their water too. So the only surfaces that could exist are um, rocks that don't incorporate water, which are all relatively low albedo. Um, like this one up here is a basalt in Hawaii, um, and they're all pretty much uniformly dark colored like that. Um, so that works for temperatures above this runaway greenhouse limit. So we could use our method for that, and we could say if we see a cool planet at these temperatures, it definitely has to have an atmosphere. Um, and then actually it turns out that there's also an upper limit to the temperature for this too. If we get to two high temperature planets, they actually start to have partial devolatilization of the rock. So basically the rock surface itself gets so hot that part of the rock starts to turn to vapor. So these planets are way, way beyond what would be habitable for any kind of life. Um, but when part of the rock starts to turn into vapor like this, what gets left behind 
is um, corundum, which is actually probably more um, regularly known to you all as this is the parent rock that encompasses ruby and sapphire. Um, so basically when your planet gets this hot, um, you're left behind with a whole face of a planet that's covered in sapphire. So that sounds like a great opportunity for like the interstellar mining corporation or whatever. Um, but that means that it wouldn't work for our detection method because it turns out corundum has a pretty high albedo as well. So we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a planet made of sapphires and a normal planet that has an atmosphere. All right, but in this intermediate temperature range though, we can uh, use this method to say for sure that if we see a planet that's cooler than we expect, then it must have an atmosphere. Um, so if you were paying attention though, you noticed that I said that this doesn't work on planets that are cool enough to have water on them. So that means that this method would not be able to tell you whether there's an atmosphere on a planet in the habitable zone. Um, but it's still gonna be really useful for figuring out which planets we wanna look at with JWST. Um, because as I said earlier, there's so much we don't know about whether planets around M dwarfs would even be able to hold on to their atmospheres um, for long enough that they could have life develop. So if we look at these planets that are even closer into their stars than habitable, even hotter, um, then if we see that those planets have atmospheres, we can probably say that planets further away from the star that wouldn't have been blasted by as much radiation um, would also be able to hold on to their atmospheres. So we can use this in general to tell us about whether um, habitable or rocky planets around M dwarfs could maybe hold on to atmospheres long enough for life to develop. So what I'm really excited this year for is that we are actually finally going to be able to use this method in action. Um, so as I'm sure all of you know, the James Webb Space Telescope finally successfully launched this past December. Um, it's gonna start taking data in June and we're actually gonna be using this method to look at a couple planets and see whether they have atmospheres over the first year of its observations. Um, so here specifically, I'm showing an example for this rocky planet around an M dwarf that's called GL486b. Um, this planet has a temperature of about 800 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's definitely not habitable, but um, we are gonna be able to test out this method and see whether we can use it to distinguish atmospheres on these types of planets. Um, so this plot kind of just shows a mock-up of what we expect to see with those observations. Of the gray shading there is a range of different, um, it's written in terms of flux, but essentially temperatures that we would expect to see on this planet if it's a bare rock. And then the blue shaded region is the range of temperatures we'd expect to see if the planet has an atmosphere. And then these black points are the data quality that we expect to get. So we'll be able to tell the difference between a planet with uh, just a bare rock surface or that has an atmosphere on top. And then if we do detect an atmosphere on this planet, um, we can use these secondary eclipse observations the same way as we do the transit observations to look for the bumps and wiggles that are indicative of all of these different molecules in the atmosphere. So if it does have an atmosphere, we'll also be able to look a little bit into the composition of that atmosphere, look for some of those major important molecules like water or carbon dioxide or things like those. And if it doesn't have an atmosphere, we can actually look at those bumps and wiggles to tell us something about the composition of the rock. So I like to refer to this as exogeology. We're gonna actually figure out what types of rocks there are on exoplanets. Um, and so this is just one proposal that I'm involved with that's gonna be using this method, um, but it's gonna be used uh, in a few different proposals this next year. So I'm very excited to see it happen actually.
All right, so before I end, I just wanted to um, acknowledge a lot of people who are involved in this project, all of my co-authors, um, particularly Daniel Cole and Mathieu Malik. Um, the two of them, along with myself, led a series of papers that kind of presented this method a year or two ago. Um, so they were really helpful in like working through how this would work uh, with these observations. Um, also funding from uh, NASA Sagan Fellowship. And then I also want to acknowledge that the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Um, today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes with Tucson being home to the Oradim and the Yaqui. All right, so just to conclude, um, the James Webb Space Telescope is gonna be able to look for atmospheres and possibly some biosignatures on rocky exoplanets orbiting M dwarf stars mostly because those stars are smaller than the sun. So it's easier to see those planets. Um, these planets might have a harder time developing life though because of the high flare rate of M dwarfs, which could strip away any atmospheres they would have. Um, so we developed this technique of secondary eclipse photometry with JWST, which will be an efficient method to look at these planets and tell which ones have atmospheres. Um, so thanks again for having me today. Um, I'd be happy to take any more questions and I've also put my email and my Twitter up on here. So if we don't get to any questions, um, yeah, let me know anytime. Thank you. Well, we have plenty of time for questions. So if those of you listening to us on Zoom have any questions for Dr. Mansfield, uh, I, you know, I will share this from one of our Zoom audience members. One of the best presentations we have had, the talk was understandable. Her presentation skills are excellent at just the right level for a public audience. Well, there you go. <laughs> But if anyone else uh, listening to us on Zoom has questions for Dr. Mansfield, please type the question into Zoom and I'll read it. Do we have any questions here? Yes, over here, and then I'll get you. Hello, yes, you mentioned um, exogeology. Now, um, would you actually take like a, can you get a spectral signature off a reflection of the rock or is yeah. that how you do it or? Yeah, basically. Well, not um, the reflection of the rock, but we are, we're seeing the light that's being um, like emitted from it, basically. And each of these rocks also has a particular spectral signature of like infrared emission, um, the same way that they reflect differently at different wavelengths. Um, so it's basically the same thing. Um, but yeah, so like we'd be able to tell the difference between a planet that's totally covered in basalt versus one that's covered in, you know, granite or some other rock type. Yeah. 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 Cool. <laughs> we should tell the Dean of our college. She's a geoscientist. Oh, really? I should be excited to hear about that. Oh, good evening. I, I want to second the, the, uh, person who com commended you on your presentation. It was great. I really enjoyed it. I'm, I was struck by you looking at M dwarf stars, which suggests that if there's intelligent life out there somewhere else, they won't be looking for us, perhaps. Yeah, actually, there have been some really interesting papers written by some people in our field about like, which stars would be able to see the Earth transit and like what systems would actually be able to look for us. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, we have a question right here. 
So I just have a question about the um, telescope itself. Like, I think your slide said that you have 80 hours on to study. Is that yeah, right? That's not me in particular. That's like a bunch of different teams that are going to be using this technique. This one proposal, I got uh, 12 hours, I think, 12 and a half hours. So. <laughs> okay. So how does that work? Do you kind of like scheduled time with the telescope? Because I would assume they're like turning different ways and doing different things. To yeah, yeah. Different so, studies. Um, it starts with, so basically um, about a year ago, I think, uh, they asked everyone in the astronomy community to submit proposals for what you wanted. And then they rank all the proposals and that's how they select what time they want. And then once you get time, basically I tell them, I wanna look at this star and I wanna look at it for this amount of time. And you have to look at it at these specific times when the planet is transiting. And then they have some big computer algorithm that does all the scheduling for you. So it's very convenient. You don't have to plan it all out, but yeah. And what's more, you don't have to travel to the telescope That's to make true. the observations. <laughs> Which is good, because it'd be very hard to get that far in space. <laughs> Do you think there will be any atmospheric signature of plate tectonics? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if you would be able to tell. So a lot of the, most of the volcanism on Earth is driven by plate tectonics. So like on surface level, you might think that if you see a lot of these volcanic gases like methane and things like that in the atmosphere, that would tell you something about plate tectonics. Um, it turns out there are actually, I believe, ways to have, um, it's called like solid plate convection where you don't have plate tectonics going on, but there's still convection in the underlying mantle and that still causes volcanic activity. And people have shown that you can get like similar buildups of gases as to if you had plate tectonics. So I think plate tectonics would be something that would be really difficult to detect at least now on an exoplanet. Um, but maybe someone will have a bright idea on how to detect that in the future. Okay, we have a couple questions from the Zoom audience. Uh, first question, will you be taking into account the density of the atmosphere impact the day slash night temperature swings. Will yeah. let me see if I got that. Will you be taking into account the density of the atmosphere, how it impacts the day night temperature swings? Right. Yeah, definitely. So if we have a more dense atmosphere, um, then it can kind of spread that heat out much more effectively, um, and that's probably what you would want if you were looking for life on one of these planets too. It wouldn't work out too well for life if it was boiling hot on one side and freezing cold on the other side. Um, so yeah, you can use kind of how well that heat is spread out to give you an idea of whether that planet would be habitable or not. Okay, and the second question, or it's more of a comment question, can you talk a bit about the stages of the work, finding what stars to observe and deciding how long to observe particular ones? Yeah, so I guess I can talk a little bit about um, this proposal that um, I was involved with. Um, so basically, um, the reason that we picked out this planet was um, because this star in particular is relatively close to us and relatively bright. So that means it's going to be easier for the telescope to observe. Um, we're going to get a bigger signal on the telescope. Um, and then the planet also is just happens to be um, the right size and the right temperature that it's also relatively easy for us to see compared to other planets. So I guess kind of the first stage in like figuring out how to do one of these proposals is thinking about which of these planets, if we have like 
six planets that are all the same temperature, which one will be the easiest for the telescope to look at, which is usually based on which star is brightest and which planet is the biggest size compared to its star. Um, and then uh, actually getting these like fake data that I put in here, you, there are a couple different things you can do to simulate um, like the amount of noise that you get from the telescope. And so that's where you get those error bars from. And that's how we can tell how many times we'd have to look at it um, in order to get the error bars good enough. So for this example, we're actually going to look at this um, planet twice. We're going to watch it do two eclipses, um, six hours each time. Um, and if we combine two measurements, these are kind of the size of the error bars we expect we're going to get. Yeah. Okay, I actually had a question. Um, it, regarding that spectrum, the ideal spectrum that you showed with the features of uh, methane and ozone, that looked to me like an emission line spectrum. Were you talking about primary eclipse? That's what I thought you were talking about. Uh, if the starlight's coming through the, the planet atmosphere, shouldn't it be an absorption line spectrum? Yeah, so you're totally right. And um, that's because everything ends up backwards in this transit depth um, metric. So basically, if you picture, um, so when there's a gas that's absorbing some of the light, the atmosphere is gonna look um, more opaque. And so basically the atmosphere will be this extra dark layer. You can't see the light through. So okay. the planet looks bigger. So when you're at a wavelength where something is absorbing all the light, the planet's going to look bigger, which means your transit depth is actually going to be bigger. This so, is a transit depth. It's not a spectrum. It's a transit depth. Uh, yeah, not, it goes the it's wrong not a spectrum. direction. I am... <laughs> we do it differently than everything else in astronomy. Uh, yeah. So okay, okay, okay. Actually, yeah. <laughs> that, okay, no, I'm sorry. I thought I was looking at a spectrum, which no, would no be problem. intensity yeah. of light versus wavelength. Okay. This is one of the first things everyone has to learn in exoplanets is that up is different <laughs> on these plots. Yeah. <laughs> hey, the HR diagram is backwards, right? So, and when the magnitude scale is backwards, so yeah, we're used to being astronomers being yeah. backwards. Any other questions? Oh, okay. Yeah, go ahead and I'll check the Zoom window just to make sure there are no more questions from the home audience. Now, is there a, a certain, um, I guess, hierarchy of which planets get observed? For example, like, is there, are, is anybody looking for anything more like in the Goldilocks zone sort of a thing, something that takes a year to get around the planet as opposed to the ones that are, you know, going around in six hours or whatever? Yeah, so um, we actually don't know that many planets that are, um, I guess, what we would call true Earth analogs, a planet the size of the Earth around a star the size of the sun, um, because it's so hard to detect them. Um, so I don't think there are any observations planned right now that are like those planets, um, but there are planned observations for um, essentially the measurement that's shown here, looking at an Earth-like planet that's um, about the same temperature as the Earth in the habitable zone of an M-dwarf star. Um, in fact, this exact planet that's shown here. Um, they won't be getting nearly that many observations, just a few, just to see kind of what's out there. Um, but yeah, those types of observations are happening as well, definitely. All right. Thank all of you who have been coming to these talks and listening to them at home uh, over the past academic year. Uh, we appreciate your patronage. Uh, now that we are concluded, I'll remind you that the telescope is open for your viewing. Uh, I believe Roz and Ilea are working tonight, and they will be able to show you whatever they can that's up in the sky. So feel free to go up and visit the telescope and uh, look for our 
uh, newsletters and emails about the upcoming schedule for next fall. Let's thank Dr. Mansfield one more time and have a nice summer.